Voice of Reason Broadcast Network presents The Heretics Hour with Carolyn Yeager. Carolyn Yeager brings you news and commentary on Holocaust revisionism, World War II history, free speech issues, and more. And now, here's Carolyn. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm glad you could join me tonight for what is sure to be a very good show. Bill Fink will be here in the next segment, and we'll talk about why we need anti-Semitism. It is the end of January already. I have to mention that. Uh, Today is the 30th, to be exact. And uh, as it gets to be, the longer you live, the faster time goes by, and this year is going to fly by very quickly, I think. Um, of course, we are plagued with the electoral campaigns in the election in November of this year, 2012. So, uh, you know, and these candidates are not talking about why we need anti-Semitism, are they? What they do say is torture to listen to for me. And speaking of torture, I will start tonight's program, as I've been doing, with a reading from The Fire, The Bombing of Germany, 1940 to 1945, by Jörg Friedrich. Uh, that was definitely a form of torture going on there. I will start tonight on page 70. Um, and what this is going to be, this is going to be more of, we're into chapter strategy, chapter 2, and it's more of how they... Um, came about uh, how, how they worked out their strategy uh, over time. And I'm going to end this when we're going to come up to um, the United States entering. And then I'll be uh, reading about the United States uh, after the United States has, had entered the war uh, next week. So starting here, and this is a pretty interesting part, I think. So I hope you're all enjoying this. I haven't gotten any mail that people don't like it, but I actually haven't gotten any that they do like it either. Um, in October 1940, Churchill and Portal had considered the possibility of destroying population centers through the maximum use of fire. Now, Portal is the chief of air staff. This became the British strategy, starting on February 14, 1942. In the area of bombing directive that the Air Ministry sent to Bomber Command, the most densely settled urban areas were identified as points of attack. Quote, it has been decided that the primary objective of your operations should not be focused on the morale of the enemy civil population and in particular of the industrial workers, unquote. It was not made quite clear how the attack on morale in the densely populated settlements was to be carried out. Arthur Harris was entrusted with answering this not insignificant question as he became the new head of Bomber Command on February 22, 1942. After the war, Harris wrote that his superiors, Charles Portal and Sir Archibald Sinclair, Secretary of State for Air, had set the strategy, target sites, and tactics for the offensive. Mm-hmm. Wasn't his doing. The objective, quote, was to be achieved by destroying mainly by incendiary bombs 
the whole of the four largest cities in the Ruhr, uh, and thereafter 14 industrial cities elsewhere in Germany, unquote. Harris, a stubborn but very pragmatic man, suggested for incineration a city that was guaranteed to be a success, Lübeck. First of all, it was located along the easily identifiable coastal contours of Lübeck Bay. Second, there was no industry there that was essential for the war effort, so it was not heavily defended. Third, its central old town consisted largely of half-timbered buildings, which burned easily. These were the reasons why Lübeck was destroyed, its convenient location, its defenselessness, and its age-old beauty. Harris waited for the full moon, and on the eve of Palm Sunday, dispatched 234 aircraft loaded with 400 tons of bombs, two-thirds of which were incendiaries. The sector to be destroyed was the winding district of merchants and seamen dating from the Hanseatic period. It was an urban island enclosed by the rivers Trave and Wakenitz, offering a clear-cut aerial image. When the raid commenced at 10.30 p.m., only a few fires could be seen, but in only 20 minutes they completely devoured their way to the Trave side of the island. Fires surged through warehouses, quays, port cranes, and 1,500 of the historic high-gabled houses, which had been built without firewalls. Ultimately, 80 miles of street facades were ablaze. That's 80, not 8. 80 miles. 62% of all buildings were destroyed or damaged. 200 acres of the old town had been gutted by fire. Firefighters needed until 10 o'clock the next morning to contain the fire. The cathedral, for which Henry the Lion had laid the cornerstone in 1173, could not be saved. At 10.30 a.m., the cupola of the North Tower broke in two, and at 2 p.m., the South Tower followed. Two bells in the Church of St. Mary fell and broke. One had been cast in 1745 and the other in 1390. They crashed down, destroying their sister, the great organ made by Arbschnitger, period. High explosive bombs that detonated near the choir shook the arch of the vault. The crown of the choir fell, burying the wooden high altar and the sedilia, which had been installed in 1310. In addition to the 25,000 incendiary sticks, 250-pound benzol and rubber bombs were also used for the first time. Harris had determined the necessary types and number of bombs by analyzing the German raid on Coventry. Now he learned something else from experience. How a city that seemed to him to be built more like a firelighter than a human habitation, reacted when a carpet of flames descended on it. Of 120,000 residents, 320 lost their lives that night. This was the highest casualty rate to date for a raid in the British offensive. The attack took place in three waves and lasted two hours. That, too, was amazing. Just a year earlier, a mission involving 100 planes was considered a complicated endeavor and took four hours, which gave firefighters some time to respond. Excuse me. In order to paralyze them in the critical phase of the fire raising, the raid had to be quick and intensive. If a huge fleet released enormous amounts of bombs in quick succession over a limited area, the resulting blaze would be uncontrollable. Next, Harris presented Operation Millennium to his chief of staff, Portal, and to Churchill for authorization. 
They were highly impressed. The glory of perfecting the technical aspects of the air war seemed worth the risk, as crazy as it was. Guided by 6,500 British airmen, a fleet of 1,000 bombers, loaded with 1,350 blast bombs and 460,000 incendiary bombs, was to darken the sky. In order to amass such a large fleet, Bomber Command, with its roughly 400 aircraft and crews ready for action, had to muster all its reserves, borrow naval aircraft, oil scrap vehicles, and call up recruits and training to the front. They flew at a tremendous risk. If this operation failed, it would have meant the end of the bomber weapons future. There would be either triumph or disaster. The nightmare scenario that plagued everyone was collision. How could such a swarm be navigated at night without planes crashing into one another? The mathematicians from operational research placed the odds of a collision at 1 to 1,000. No one believed the odds could be so low, but in fact, very few planes were lost in collisions. The moon set the date, the last week of May, 1942. Now the city had to be determined. The lot fell to Hamburg. It was the second largest German city and was the preferred choice of the Admiralty because of the hundred U-boats produced there annually. The full moon period began on May 26th, but so did bad weather. The clouds hung too densely, so the mission was delayed three days. But on May 30th, the orders came. The city was now Cologne. It had its own natural markings offered by the Rhine. The bombers approached from the north and flew southward following the river upstream. Every second plane was fitted with G navigation. Crews with a special knack for target location scouted ahead, leading the raid and setting illumination flares. They were ordered to carry out the bombardment in an inconceivably short 90 minutes. Every five seconds, a bomber appeared over the city. Even if only a fraction of them actually ignited, the immense number of small, light, incendiary bombs would start thousands of separate fires. If, on top of that, explosives blocked firefighters from reaching the flames to extinguish them, they would grow into a carpet-like blaze. (coughs) Things did not go exactly as planned. About 12,000 individual fires developed into 1,700 major conflagrations, but the water lines remained intact. 150 fire departments from Dusseldorf, Duisburg, and Bonn raced to the city, laying hoses from hydrants into the buildings. Huge pipes were submerged into the Rhine to draw out many thousands of tons of water, and motor-driven fire pumps generated the pressure to pump the water for miles (coughs) to the damaged areas. The vast spreading conflagration of Lübeck was not repeated. I'm sorry. Cologne, a more modern city with wider streets, could defend itself. That is, Cologne did better than Lübeck had been able to do. The flak batteries and their searchlights caused 3.9% losses for the attackers, the highest thus far. But the British bore it with relief. It had been worth it. The Thousand Bomber Raid was an enormous accomplishment of weapons technology. It demonstrated the successful capability of the force. Bomber Command had finally proved to skeptics that its campaign could grow into a war of its own. 
England would no longer be merely tolerating war, but waging it, and waging it with considerable staying power. Now the gloves were off, commented Churchill, and he announced, announced to the House of Commons that in the course of that year, all German cities, ports, and war production centers, quote, would face a test, a test so unremitting, severe, and extensive, such that no country has ever before experienced, unquote. How can the results be put into words? The bomber crews reported home that from the 55th minute onward, they felt like they were flying over a spewing volcano. The Nazi press railed against the inhuman beasts. They call them the British gangs of murderers who are waging war against the defenseless. In the morning, when caustic smoke still filled the entire city, reddening eyes and adhering to clothing, the Kölner Zeitung, the Cologne newspaper, a newspaper whose offices had suffered serious damage, wrote that those who survived the night and looked at the city the next morning were well aware that they would never again see their old Cologne. There were 3,300 buildings destroyed and 9,500 damaged. This was not major damage for a city with a population of 772,000. It took 262 air raids before 95% of the old town was finally destroyed. The amount of alteration to the face of the city cannot be measured as a percentage. It was totally disfigured by the damage to the Hoestrasse, or High Street, which followed the course of the former Roman Main Street, the Cardo Maximus. The destruction of the eastern side of the... Well, I wasn't going to read this part, but I will. The destruction of the eastern side of the old market with its buildings from the late Renaissance and the loss of the western gallery of St. Mary in the capital, one of the most architecturally harmonious buildings of the western world, which had been erected atop late Roman foundations in the 11th century on a hill along the Rhine. In the church of St. Ursula, a triple-nave basilica from the 13th century, the remains of 11,000 virgins continued to lie in stone sarcophagi built in the choir, built into the choir for another 34 months until March 1st, 1945, the day that marked the end of Cologne. Four days after that raid, the 262nd, the U.S. Army entered the city. That was the 262nd raid against Cologne. Think of how many raids were carried out since all cities were hit with multiple, multiple raids. <clears throat> so to continue, the Thousand Bomber Raid took 480 lives and left 5,000 injured, most of whom had been outside the large residential block cellars that provided stable protection. These figures, too, far surpassed all previous campaigns. The British claimed to have killed 6,000. A four-digit figure was more fitting for an operation named Millennium. Air Secretary Sinclair congratulated the troops with the promise that, quote, the next climax would be even more powerful, unquote. Churchill publicly announced to Bomber Command that Cologne was, quote, the forewarning of what one German city after another would have to endure from now on, unquote. In retaliation for Cologne, the Germans dropped a hundred incendiary bombs on another symbol of Christianity, the Diocese, Diocese of Canterbury, on June 1, 1942. Harris repeated Millennium's tactics in early June in Essen and later that month in Bremen, with moderate success in the former and miserable results in the latter. 
the influence of the weather, teething problems with the radar navigation, and the defenses of the mission targets made every operation risky. In the 3,000 bomber raids, a total of 777 men and one-fourth of all aircraft were lost. That's a lot. The lives of hard-to-replace flight instructors and trainers had been wasted. Okay. There were no signs of a debacle as regards German morale, and industrial production did not fall through the floor either. Two raids against Dusseldorf, the headquarters of the armaments combines, were viewed by the British as highly successful, despite the fact that production there still increased 1.8% in the second half of the year after the city had suffered the impact of more than 1,500 tons of bombs carried by 1,100 aircraft, of which 10.5% was lost in the first raid and 7.1% in the second. In August 1942, when the 1st German Panzer Army had reached the northern Caucasus, and the 4th Panzer Army pushed through to the Volga River to lay siege to Stalingrad, Churchill promised the disgruntled Stalin that he would surround all of Germany. England hoped to shatter almost every dwelling in almost every German city. That would not be bad, replied Stalin. Churchill's scientific advisor, Professor Frederick A. Lindemann, or otherwise known as Lord Churwell, now this Lindemann, is was a German Jew who went to London or England, um, went to England and uh, became friendly with, became very English and became Lord Churwell. I don't know how his whole story goes, but he was originally, he is, a, he is um, by blood German, but by choice English. He, he was, uh, as it says here, Churchill's scientific advisor. He had calculated that with 10,000 bombers, they could render 22 million Germans homeless. That would put one in every Germans out on the street. What? No. That would put one in every three Germans out on the street, and it would also mean the end of any will to resist. Henry Tizard ripped apart these irrational fantasies and resigned after he was accused of being a defeatist. Lord Churwell, ridiculed behind his back as Churchill's Rasputin, was totally surprised when Charles Portal, the most authoritative voice in the Air Force, trumped him in November. Portal demanded that 1.25 million tons of bombs be dropped in 1943 and 1944. Six million apartment buildings and a corresponding number of industrial administrative buildings would thus be reduced to rubble. 25 million Germans would be rendered homeless, 900,000 would be killed, and 1 million seriously injured. That was a quote from Portal, I guess. Uh, experience has had shown that raw materials and reserve stocks could not be adequately replaced, nor could structural damages be adequately repaired, but it would be more difficult to estimate the consequences for morale since the scale of bombardment would far transcend anything within human experience. Nevertheless, there could be no doubt that they would be profound indeed. In September, the bomber fleet's casualty rate was 10.6%. A crew's expectation of surviving their 30 sorties was approaching zero. The weapon of the strategic bomber offensive had essentially been implemented. It functioned even if not every mission was a success. Its destructive force grew appreciably. Considerations that had tied it down had vanished. 
It had been unleashed, but unfettered, unfettered, no, excuse me. It had been unleashed, but unfettered strategy did not deliver on its promise. Arthur Harris admitted that, quote, it never occurred to me that we could reduce the largest and most efficient industrial power in Europe to impotence by a year's bombing with an average striking force of six or 700 bombers, 30,000 heavy bombers, and the war would be over by morning, he said. Bomber Command had a tactic, tacit, had a tacit desire for an apocalyptic strike, but that is not how things went. The city landscapes were leveled layer by layer, and the British losses were unyieldingly endured. Harris's contribution was to develop further the depth of the weapon's destructiveness. Bomber losses in 1943 were five times greater than the total number of bombers that Harris had at his disposal in 1942, and he never managed to have 2,000 aircraft ready for deployment. The number of people killed, however, had increased 14-fold from 1942 to 1943, from 6,800 in 42 to 100,000 civilians in 43. Skip a paragraph, go on to the next page, and read, He came and bombed. Harris had set a rate of 12 bombers per minute in Cologne. This had been viewed as highly risky. In the Battle of Berlin in the fall of 1943, a rate of 16 bombers per minute continued for 45 minutes. In the evening of November 23, 1943, 753 Lancasters, Halifaxes, and Stirlings released 2,500 tons of bombs from 7.58 p.m. to 8.20 p.m. at a rate of 34 planes per minute, one plane every 1.76 seconds over the Berlin districts of Tiergarten, Charlottenburg, and Spandau. Berlin-Charlottenburg is not much smaller than the city of Würzburg, which on the night of March 16, 1945, was wiped off the face of the earth in 17 minutes. That was one of the final performances of a virtuoso that Harris had been breeding since 1942. He was able to accurately reduce a shrine of the European Baroque to ashes with the help of 1,100 tons of bombs released at 4.76 second intervals. There was no more war to win. It had already been won. Taking a cityscape that was begun in 1040 and completed 700 years later by Balthasar, I should say Balthasar Newman, and devastating it in 15 minutes with 300,000 incendiary sticks had become old hat. Bombing required a special kind of expertise, and after its bungling in 1941, Bomber Command was proud to have perfected the art. I will. I, I came to the end of what I was going to read, but I still have a few more minutes, so I think I will continue to the rest of this section. Uh, the enormity of the bomber stream enabled such a rapid bomb drop. The enormity of the bomber stream enabled such a rapid bomb drop. The pathfinder set the flares to frame the bomber's concentrated drop. That technique was tested in 1942, and its efficacy led to an ever-accelerating vortex of destruction from 1943 to 1945. The innovation of the bomber stream made it possible, first of all, to penetrate the Kamhuber line, 
The previous flight approach method was very relaxed and pulsating, more of an infiltration than an offensive. It offered the night hunt too much flank. The tighter and deeper Com Huber set up his, uh, Com Huber is a person, set up his Himmelbetten, radar reflectors, and blocks of searchlights, the more difficult it was for intruding planes to slip through. This is the guy in charge of the uh, flak <clears throat> defense. They groped from night fighter sector to night fighter sector, with each hour in the air increasing the probability of getting caught. Once they reached the city, they spent two hours on the lookout for oil tanks and train stations, but the flak artillery had just as much time to find them. Cam Huber had nothing that could prevent the breakthrough of a hundred box-like, multi-tiered formations, each of which was about three miles long, five miles wide, and almost two miles deep. That's the the large (coughs) formation of planes. The fighter planes caught a handful of bombers at the edge of the stream, but as they were battling with them, the main force swept through, while the mosquitoes above the flak-controlled zone lit up the outline of the bomb-drop sector, The bombers, releasing their loads, shot through at full speed, thereby shortening the time they were subjected to grenade fire. Harris's method can be seen as self-defense. They are protecting themselves from the Germans, and at least the wind knew what area the marker was illuminating, since it scattered the flares as they parachuted down. There was always some other explanation for a politics of annihilation. Well, I will end there, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we're about ready for the music to show up, come. And when we get back, we will have our guest with us. Thank you for listening to this. I think this reading this book is, is very important to me. I'm glad I have the opportunity to do it. Be right back after the news break. Right back with more on the Heretics Hour. You're listening to VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. When America beats the drums of war over Iran, it may not always be driven by the Islamic State's nuclear intentions. Would be U.S. presidential candidates aren't shy when it comes to voicing their anti-Iran rhetoric in front of America's influential Jewish community. RT's Marina Portnoy explains. America almost never misses an opportunity to praise its ally. Our ironclad commitment, and I mean ironclad to Israel's security, has meant the closest military cooperation between our two countries in history. Or point a proverbial punch at its greatest adversary. Let there be no doubt, America is determined to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon, and I will take no options off the table to achieve that goal. However, for many American Jews and Israeli supporters, Barack Obama's war of words against Tehran doesn't go far enough. It's not enough to simply state, I'm I'm committed to Israel's security. Uh, You have to promote policies that that show that you're serious about Israel's security. Israel 
uh, through these actions, feels that, um, that Obama is not committed to doing everything in his power to stop Iran from having nuclear weapons. <laughs> Iran is, a, is an existential threat to Israel. And Obama uh, should be saying uh, uh, so publicly that he will support Israel in whatever military action they, they need necessary. Morton Klein is president of the Zionist Organization of America. He says an unprecedented amount of American Jews and Israelis share his animosity, a feeling arguably underscored by the Israeli government. According to published reports, Tel Aviv would only give Washington 12 hours notice if deciding to strike Iran. I believe his policies are, are among the most hostile Israel's ever experienced of, of any president in my lifetime. Recently, it was the life of President Obama being threatened in a column written by the owner of the Atlanta Jewish Times. In an article titled, What Would You Do? Andrew Adler listed the assassination of Obama as one way to ensure Israel's security. He wrote in part, Give the go-ahead for U.S.-based Mossad agents to take out a president deemed unfriendly to Israel in order for the current vice president to take his place and forcefully dictate that the United States policy includes helping the Jewish state obliterate its enemies. I think that the, the threat made to Obama that you either play ball with us or we are going to kill you, either politically or literally, I think that it is uh, a serious threat that we all have to take seriously. The American president depends upon money in order to be reelected, along with all of uh, the members of Congress. And APAC is the largest, uh, singularly largest uh, lobbying group in the United States. It is the kingmaker and the kingbreaker. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, known as APAC, declined RT's request for an interview. Let's return to the Heretics Hour, brought to you by VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. And now here's Carolyn. Oh, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I am Carolyn Yeager, and with me is William Fink of Christagenia.org, a good friend of mine who I really appreciate him being here tonight because he always has... He's, he has, he is someone who really is able to put things into words that uh, make an impact and that everybody can understand. And as I think, things things need to be simplified, not made more more complex. So, hello, Bill. Welcome. Hello, and praise Christ. <laughs> okay. Hello. Uh, now, um, you know, I I wanted to in this first half uh, first half hour that you're on to go through these news stories that I have collected, and I sent them to you, but I don't know how much you've looked them over. But um, there's quite a few, but I, I want to kind of rush through them in a sense because I want to be able in the second hour to talk about some things on your uh, Saxon Messenger, 
newsletter that just went out and, and some other uh, writings um, about anti-Semitism and so on. So uh, we'll, we'll just see how it goes, though, okay? Yes. Yes. All right. Well, I got these uh, stories, and I thought, well, I'll just start out with the uh, – now, these are supposed th- – these stories I collected to to um, to uh, demonstrate or to be examples of how – how the uh, Jewish power and Jewish influence is is just trying to increasingly stop us and uh, from having any say over what we do, and we have to be we have to be. You'll see that each one of them is about how we uh, are to serve them, how we are to. Uh, um, I hope that wasn't me dropping off here. I hear some funny noises. Is my Skype? Am I losing my Skype? No. Um, and and how how we're supposed to put ourselves second to them now. So the first one is something that I'm sure everybody's uh, already heard about, maybe, and that's that Mel Gibson. Uh, it's a funny little story that a California um, synagogue uh, sent sent Mel Gibson a message to help them out with their financial problems, and they did this. He said he didn't even know about it, but they did this by um, by saying in their letter to him, our proposal, I guess they may have made it public, our proposal to you, Mr. Gibson, is since you have been cited as an anti-Semitic and have denied those allegations, what better way to prove to all your fans and the naysayers than to endorse and help raise funds for our cause, uh, SOS Save Our Synagogue. So they, they're having trouble repaying a loan, uh, that the, the synagogue owes, and they're trying to head off foreclosure. And so they decided to make this big play to Mel Gibson to see if he, since he's given uh, money to Jewish charities in the past, in the form of millions of dollars. So this is a, you know, so although we don't know what Gibson's, I hope he doesn't give them anything. However, here's the thing I would say, that he's he denied being anti-Semitic. And if he hadn't denied it, they would probably leave him alone. But since he denied it, now he's supposed to prove that he's not. So there's one reason why people should not be denying it. What do you What do you have to say about well, that? Well, well, the Jews are absolutely experts at playing on guilt as a way and the means of extortion. That mm-hmm. they, They've done it with Germany for 60 years. They're doing it with Austria now. That there, there are these Jews that claim to have been the descendants of rich Austrians who were robbed of their property and they're suing Austria. It, it's, it, it never ends. The Holocaust... Right never ends it this is a, a miniature it, it's it's a micro version of holocaust guilt yeah you know mm-hmm. they play on that guilt in order to extort us they've always done it, it, it it's um it's historical with now and it doesn't help does it when people uh insist that they're not anti-semitic that they don't have anything against jews uh, then, then that just emboldens the Jews and just makes out that well, then they should be helping the Jews out, right? So he should, he should. But of course, he's in Hollywood, and the Jews run Hollywood. So uh, you know, he has to be careful for that reason. Uh, that's that's. There's always some way where you're caught, unless you're a total free person, like you and I. You're caught in, you know, in some kind of a net. Well, well let's well, go on. I'm yeah. sorry. That, that's why the Christian message is that when you when when you don't care about wealth, you're free, right? That's part of the Christian message. It is not to care about wealth, and, and you won't have these burdens, and you won't need to be a whore. 
Well, that's right. But when when you when you don't, but but we don't all want to be uh, impoverished either. So, uh, but yes, if you don't have anything to defend, you're you're free. You're right. Uh, now, um, the next the next story is from Haaretz. Of course, it's a Jewish paper, but still, this is this uh, this is worthwhile, I think, because here they say, oh, this computer keeps jumping because of this funny mouse they have here. Here they say that um, they have a headline, UN establishes forum to combat anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial. And when you read the article, you find out that the UN has not established anything, that uh, it is uh, something that uh, a group of, uh, let's see, 600 American, no, that was, uh, well, an international Jewish organization has has formed itself and called itself the World Forum of Russian Jewelry. And during, on Holocaust Remembrance Day at the UN, when they were holding a ceremony for that, they at that time announced their organization, World Forum of Russian Jewelry, which is set up to primarily work to influence their governments to join the world's fight against Iran. Can you believe? Now, uh, the point of this is that uh, the way they lie and deceive people, you know, even in their own newspaper, uh, you know, Haaretz is a Jewish newspaper, uh, they, they give a headline that this is a UN uh, has established something, and they didn't establish it at all. Uh, they, allow, they allow it to be announced there, I guess, but, um, but it's, it's, it's not their organization. So... Uh, there's that. You have to be so careful when you read these things. Now, another thing in Haaretz uh, was this opinion piece, which I wasn't really going to talk about, but it, there's a point to it. It's um, it's opinion by the author of this editorial is Nathan Lerner, naturally a lawyer from uh, Israel, and his opinion is that uh, freedom of speech doesn't apply with Holocaust denial. Uh, so he's arguing this, and he's he, he is talking about it in legal terms a little bit, but he says it is aimed at laws that exist in a large number of European states and in Israel as well, prohibiting um, uh, denial of the Holocaust. And he says now to a recent United Nations expert seminar. See how they use the United Nations. They're, they're just trying to take over the United Nations, and the United Nations, like everything and everyone else, is intimidated by them. And so he's, he, was, he was on this, uh, in this United Nations seminar, and uh, he felt the need to caution against opinions, opinions of experts um, in favor of decriminalizing these uh, views uh, that are likely to incite against religious or ethnic groups. So he says a, uh, he, he does not allow for analysis of the legal complexity, or oh, this, 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 this uh, view does not allow for analysis of the legal complexities. You see how they get they get things tied up in legalese because they're they're lawyers. You know they 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 focus on the law. They're experts in the law. They get in they get and then they start confusing everybody about the law and they pretty soon uh, turn the law their way. And here's the thing I want to say. He says there has always been you know he's trying to act like he's open minded about it. But he says, uh, there's a need to strike a balance between respect for freedom of expression and protection of populations endangered by the abuse of that freedom. Well, that, that's the bottom line there. They want to protect themselves. <laughs> everything they do is to protect themselves 
from the rightful criticism uh, that is that would be projected against them, right? Can, can I read a paragraph, just one short paragraph? Sure, sure. From a paper by Dr. Joseph Goebbels. Okay. The creators of the world's misfortunes, and this is only the opening paragraph, one could not understand this war if one did not always keep in mind the fact that international Jewry stands behind all of the unnatural forces that our united enemies, meaning America and Britain, used to attempt to deceive the world and keep humanity in the dark. It is, so to speak, the mortar that holds the enemy coalition firmly together, despite its differences of class, ideology, and interests. Capitalism and Bolshevism have the same Jewish roots, and they do, two branches of the same tree that in the end bear the same fruit. Now, America, of course, was founded on a free enterprise system that had nothing to do with Jewish capitalism. International Jewry uses both its own way to suppress the nations and keep them in its service. How deep its influence on public opinion is in all the enemy countries, meaning America and Britain and, and the others, and many neutral nations is plain to see that it may never be mentioned in the newspapers, speeches, and radio broadcasts. There is a law in the Soviet Union, in, in communist Russia, which was Jewish in nature. It was Jewish in its founding, and, and it was led and commanded by Jews all throughout its history, that punishes anti-Semitism, or in plain English, public education about the Jewish question. That's what anti-Semitism really is. It's public education about the Jewish question, according to Joseph Goebbels. And that law punished anti-Semitism by death in the Soviet Union, even through the Stalin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev years. The expert in these matters is in no way surprised that a leading spokesman for the Kremlin said over the new year, this is 1945, of course, that the Soviet Union would not rest until this law was valid throughout the world. And we see anti-Semitism the Jews want to put laws on all the books to punish any criticism of Jews whatsoever. Mm -hmm. In other words, the enemy clearly says that its goal in this war, in World War II, is to put the total domination of Jewry over the nations of the earth under legal protection. That's exactly mm. what they're still trying to do. Exactly. And they're still trying to maintain that. And to threaten even a discussion of this shameful attempt with the death penalty. Yeah. Okay, very good. That is it. That is it. They want to be protected. All these laws are set up to protect themselves and, 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 and nothing more. They're history's longest-running crime reign. Yeah. And, and, and they want to force us to, to in, into these laws that promote them as a special class so that they can never... Be criticized, and they can get it. They can continue with their crime wave. Well, well, absolutely. And, yeah, and that—that's you know the, the um all of the revolutions of Europe, the French Revolution, and and especially the French Revolution and the Bolshevik Revolution, which were the most violent and the most successful for them, and. and they, you know, how many billions of, well, hundreds of millions of white people died in the wars of Europe. Millions of people died in those revolutions so that the, the, the Jewish people could 
actually abscond the property of the European middle classes and, and upper classes, and that's exactly what they've done. Yes. Okay, let's go on to three stories from Die Zeit. Um, I've got... Um, the first one is about Viktor Orban. You know, he is the, the new prime minister, isn't he the prime? He's, he's head of the government now in um, of Hungary, in, in Budapest. And he's very right-wing. He's a kind of a national socialist type of thinker. He wants to he wants to use the uh, economic policies that Hitler used to bring Hungary back, and of course the back to uh, uh, um, um, <laughs> back to uh, um, economic. Uh, He'll be right. assassinated. They'll kill him. Well, I hope not. I really like him, and uh, he he's got a lot of support now. In this crazy story in Desite, and Desite is kind of a left type. Uh, newspaper in Germany, uh, it, it's, the highlights of it is that it's just telling about this demonstration of 100,000 pro-Orban uh, 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 supporters against the left media pressure and, act- and also the economic pressure by the EU against Hungary because they've got a right-wing government. Um, and Desite naturally comments that the actual support for the uh, Orban government is minimal. And they say that 86% of Hungarians do not support their government, when in fact the free elections gave Orban's right-wing party the absolute majority. So you see how they lie about what's what, so that the people who read their newspaper will get the wrong, will not only get the wrong impression, they get the entire wrong information. That was just a little thing. Now I want to talk about this Edgar family. This is another example where in, in Germany they go after people uh, who had family members in their past who associated with the National Socialists during the Third Reich. And they're supposed to be, uh, you know, marked like, for, like wearing a, a yellow star or something or wearing some kind of a badge to say how guilty they are. From then on, all their, all their, uh, all the people who follow after them. Now here we have this Etker family who had a very good, and still has a very good business, their business family in Germany. And, uh, in, uh, it, it tell, it's got this whole story in there about the family and it's all written in this, in the way of, oh, uh, they have not done proper penance for their, their association. One family member's association, August, August, who was the head of the business, his association with the Third Reich. And so this all has to come out. So now the family, the, the latest, uh, the, the oldest family member died. So now the, the younger one who's now in charge of everything, uh, he uh, has been, of course, lived through the indoctrination, all the indoctrination period. So he, he, they, the family has now agreed to, uh, they hired a... Uh, uh, a, a his, a his. Oh, let's see. From the um, where is that? That profe- uh, from the University of Augsburg, Professor Andreas Versching, to do to research through their family archives and write a whole history about uh, what their relationship with the the evil National Socialist was, so that this all gets made public. And now this family, they started out. They were custard. They 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 were food. Producers who made custard, Edgar Custard, and in, 19, in the 1950s, 
once Germany started going again, uh, they turned their custard company into a diversified concern because if they hadn't, of course, somebody would have bought them out because they were just a custard company. And uh, so they bought some other people out, and uh, they started. They now have food. Uh, they they're brewing beer. They're fermenting champagne. They they added insurance naturally and banking, uh, and running Germany's second largest shipyard. Well, they're they're capitalists, but uh, you know they're they're they've never been discovered in any kind of scandals or anything. So I guess they're. They're fairly honest about what they do, but they they are a solid, good German business. But now they're being uh, they're being exposed uh, publicly more than they had been uh, because they have to go after somebody all the time. And they we find out that August, uh, the uh, elder, was a member of the Friends of Heinrich Himmler, and uh, that was an organization during the Third Reich, naturally of people who were supporting Heinrich Himmler. And it said that, um, uh, here's another little thing, when in 1969 they named an art hall in their hometown of Bielefeld, uh, they obviously uh, uh, spent the money for this, uh, after Richard Kazalowski, stepfather of Rudolf Edgar and chief of the company, uh, they, named the, they named the art hall after this Richard Kazalowski. Uh, who was the stepfather of some of the, of the older guy in the family? And fierce protest erupted. You know, I wonder from whom. Who would have started that protest? What do you think? Uh, and Kasselowski, because Kasselowski had in 1933 joined the NSDAP, and he had joined the exclusive Friends of Heinrich Himmler, and he attended meetings in Berlin, uh, visited Gestapo headquarters, in the, and and he visited this KZ Sachsenhausen in Dachau. Now this is supposed to all be held against him. This is terrible. And yet uh, the KZ Sachsenhausen in Dachau were the first uh, concentration camps or KZs uh, in Germany, and they were modeled new kind of a new kind of prison, the new camps that were showcased by the Nazis. And in fact, Americans and British uh, high level people came to visit them too. All kinds of people came to visit them. Uh, back in the good old days, and uh, but now uh, this is this is held against him, and, and he's expected, and he therefore, as a member of Friends of Heinrich Himmler, he was expected to contribute to to Himmler's pet project, um, whatever it was, which he did, and uh, they belonged. And naturally, this was the government, and these were business people, so they were supporting the government, like all business people will do. Uh, they belonged. Uh, so uh, a few other things about them. But also, there's something kind of funny here. It says that um, uh, they uh, they published the Edkers uh, family had a, they had a newspaper, and then they published millions of brochures before World War II to tell the German Hausfrauen or housewives to be thrifty, using the phrase "baking is fun, even with little lard and a few eggs." Huh. They were they were trying to encourage the German housewives to to uh, use less. Less and and you do more with less and use less lard and less eggs in their baking, but even still, it would it would be good. But now today, Bill, women are not encouraged to bake at all, but to buy ready-made food, and they're certainly not encouraged to be housewives, are they? Well, well, absolutely not. Most women don't bake. Most women can't. That's right. <laughs> Most of the young women I know can't bake. That they can't sew, they can't bake, they, 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 they've forgotten that they can use a microwave, that they mm-hmm. can, <laughs> that, yeah. that, 
yeah, you know, they buy all this food that, that's manufactured food from these Jewish um, mega corporations and and Jewish controlled mega corporations, and and they um, they microwave it. I mean, women don't know how to cook anymore. No, yeah. and, and they don't. I'm not saying, yeah, you know, men don't know how to how to be blacksmiths and 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 um, and, and masons anymore either, right? I, I mean, most men can't do. The, the rudimentary things that that help us sing, sustain a society either yeah you know from scratch we couldn't start over again because we don't have the skills well, well women are in the same boat the, the well, rudimentary- that, that that all was done by saying that that you don't want that's lower class to do that kind of work and for women uh, to be a housewife was like an insult you know that that was an insulting word i remember when it became an insulting word um and uh so uh this this was uh, this was one way. This was part of the whole agenda. But anyway, uh, this is uh, this is just another example of how they run these stories and show that that people who are not exactly in step with the with the uh, well, I'll call it Jewish or with the uh, Zionist or whatever you want to call it, thinking of today, the world globalism uh, globalist thinking of today um, are just uh, persecuted something awful and uh they do it in these newspapers all the time and people who don't know are in they're influenced by this now another story we're almost ready for our for our break bill but another story is this uh, one about uh, hold your apple which i want to go into a little bit because here's another way where they're just smearing this this man and his wife because he is head of the npd so this this newspaper um, runs this story uh, calling him the priest and his brown sheep because uh, Holger Apple's wife is a Catholic. They're both Catholics. Holger was brought up in the Catholic Church and he was confirmed and so on. And they have uh, three sons and they all, they're all in the church. And they're making a big deal out of the fact that this Nazi is in the church and he's bringing evil into the church. You wouldn't believe this. Um, you know, the way they write this thing. It doesn't even have, it doesn't even have an author. It's just written, put out by the newspaper somehow because it doesn't have a byline to it. And it's not news. No, it's a, it's a kind of a feature story. Yeah. Somebody's political affiliation and the church they go to, that's not newsworthy, right? Well, I mean, that's not news. That, that's, that, 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 that shouldn't, that newspaper shouldn't be allowed to function as a newspaper. Well, yeah, but this is what they do now. And uh, this is how newspapers are. But the thing is, uh, well, they've always been this way. But the thing is, you know, they they are just insulting and slandering these people. Uh, be, they think they can get it. They think that it's perfectly fine to do that because they're not, they're, they're not Nazis. He's, he's a right-wing, he's the head of a right-wing party. <laughs> they call him a Nazi. They just throw that word around. And, and they just insult him and her. Uh, it's just amazing, and they get away with it. The, the bottom line is, and they do it much more subtly in this country, but for, for centuries, and, and this has been going on for 200 years, the Jewish media, and now today in America, all the media is Jewish, the Jew, Jewish media is very adept at slandering honest political opposition. They slander and, and, and belittle and demonize honest political opposition. If you're an honest conservative, if you don't have any intention of hurting anyone, no crystal knocked, 
that no beer hall putsch. If, if you're an honest conservative who stands for Christian values, the Jewish media is going to slander you. They're going to brand you a Nazi because anybody who desires to, to dwell in a moral society is basically a Nazi to the Jew. Yes, that's right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, stay with us. We'll be back for our second hour right after this. We'll be right back with more on the Heretics Hour. You're listening to VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. From Feature Story News in London, I'm Ollie Barrett. 25 European Union countries have signed up to a new treaty to impose tougher fiscal controls and sanctions. The Czech Republic and Britain are the only two countries to not be part of the new fiscal compact. British Prime Minister David Cameron said he was right to veto the new treaty during a dramatic summit last month. He added he'd be watching closely to ensure Britain's interests would not be harmed. Now, our national interest is that these countries get on and sort out the mess that is the euro. That's in our national interest. It's also in our national interest that the new treaty outside the EU doesn't encroach on the single market or the things that we care about. That's the outcome we want to achieve. So we'll be watching like a hawk. And if there's any sign that they're going to encroach on the single market, then clearly we would, uh, you know, we would take the appropriate action, if I can put it that way. Do I think that this treaty on its own is going to solve the problems of the Eurozone? No, I don't, because as I said in Davos, there's a fiscal issue that needs to be sorted out, but there's also a competitiveness issue that needs to be sorted out. And just piling up fiscal rules won't actually help uh, Italy and Spain and Portugal and Greece and others compete in the Eurozone. Mitt Romney leads most polls ahead of Florida's Republican primary on Tuesday. The former Massachusetts governor has a significant lead over former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, according to several surveys. Mr Gingrich insists he will continue his battle for the Republican nomination to run against President Obama in November, even if he loses by a wide margin in Florida. But Mayor of Tampa, Florida, Bob Buckhorn, thinks Romney would be a bigger threat to Obama than Gingrich, and that the state's primary is key. He is a more mainstream, moderate candidate, which I think will make him more appealing outside of the Republican primary. Um, But it's going to be a competitive race either way. Demographically, ethnically, it's a swing area. So if their messages translate here and if they resonate here, they will resonate out with swing voters across America. So it's really ground zero for American politics. The U.S. has called on countries to decide where they stand on what it calls the Syrian regime's brutality. Activists say 95 people were killed across Syria on Monday in cities including Damascus and Homs. The White House says President Bashar al-Assad has lost control of Syria, adding he will go. The World Trade Organization's appeals body has upheld a ruling that China restricted exports of certain raw materials to protect its domestic manufacturers. China had appealed a WTO ruling in July that it broke global trade rules. The US, Europe and Mexico argued that China's export block on such things as magnesium and bauxite drove up prices. 
For breaking news updates, follow me on Twitter at Ollie Barrett or at Feature Story. From bureaus worldwide, this is FSN. Let's return to the Heretics Hour, brought to you by VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. And now here's Carolyn. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am here with William Fink of Christagenia.org, and I'm still going through my, my news stories. I've got a few more, and they won't take too long. Then we'll, we'll move on to something... Um, Something, some things from uh, Bill's website. Now, um, this next one I want to talk about is a, a totally different vein. This is not the people that they want to tear tear up in their newspapers. They, they hear someone who they praise to the skies. This is a story about Barbara John, who is a, a, a German Jew. I guess she's German, uh, who's ombudsman, ombudsman for neo-Nazi victims, which are Turks. These are the ones who they who they say were killed by this Vikow group, uh, but I don't think they were killed by these people. But they were they were killed. And they were uh, uh, ten different people. Actually, eight of them are the uh, Turks from different regions of Germany over a period of like ten years or eight years, maybe or six years at least. Uh, ten different ten people from different regions all over Germany individually. They were killed, and they had never solved these murders. But, you know, the thing is, they, they had been talking about them all along as that all these men were involved in dr- drug business or some kind of crime uh, crime scene. And, but they, didn't, they couldn't find the murders. Well, you know, when it's, when, it's, uh, that kind of, when it's that kind of murder, when it's a, a drug-related or whatever, you don't find you don't find the culprits. They're not they're not the kind of people you can find. These are like, uh, you know, uh, what, mafia murders. You know, all the worse. So now, but now they've decided that since they're going to blame these murders on these uh, three Zwickau people, two of whom are dead, and that one poor woman is in is in jail uh, while they're trying to dream up charges against her. I've talked about her several times. Be, Baita Chape. Uh, now, this 74-year-old Barbara John of the Berlin Senate, she's uh, she was a commissioner. She was she was in charge of the Commission for Foreigners, you, you know, and uh, and um, multiculturalism and so on, and bringing bringing people into the country, foreigners into the country. And she's been recognized for her commitment to integration. And she's been given the Moses Mendelssohn Prize for Tolerance and also the Order of Merit of the State of Berlin. See, they, they love her. Now, she, 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 now, she, now, she now has all this money to spend 
on these victims' families that they're going to take care of. What? Is she a Jewish or is she German? No, she has to be Jewish. Well, I think she's, you know, she's a, her name is Barbara John. Um, there's a picture of her at this, in the, with this story. And uh, she, uh, she looks more like an Eastern European to me. But anyway, uh, she's probably, she's probably Jewish. Um, but whether she is or not, uh, she's a, a total, uh, you know, uh, lefty. And so she says, you know, massive mistakes have been made. And these poor people's families, they could not heal by themselves. Now, so, you know, the German government has to help them heal. And, uh, and uh, she's in the process of exploring what is urgently needed by these victims' families, Turks, all of them. Uh, they're asked to write everything down that they need. And she intends to individually take care of the families and for psychological counseling, material aid, victims' pensions, and the like. All of this for these people, but these three Germans that they're, that they're victimizing because they happen to have right-wing views, um, you know, they get nothing, and most Germans don't get much of anything either. So this is, this is just another example of, of how this Jewish uh, structure that, we're falling, that we've fallen into, and it really we've been in it for a long time, but it, it gets more obvious all the time uh, how it works. Now the other one, Bill, that you're going to like is is this Austrian uh, in Austria in Vienna? They've announced plans now, the government, to erect a memorial in honor of soldiers who deserted from Adolf Hitler's army, the Wehrmacht. They're they're going to they're going to erect a memorial for deserters, and the city council has yet to decide the exact location. But the people campaigning for it, and who do you think they are, uh, want it to be put in the Heldenplatz which was the hero square under uh, in Hitler's time, uh, but it still is, a, they still have war memorials there. Alongside all the war memorials, this, this, uh, this memorial to the deserters, because, because they deserted uh, from, from uh, Hitler's army. Is that sickening or not? It's absolutely, it, it's, it, you know, <laughs> the Jewish... The, the Jewish mind is a caricature of, of a normal mind. It's everything in the Jewish mind is distorted. It, it's absolutely incredible, and, and it's Orwellian to take deserters and make them heroes. It, it's absolutely or it, it's it's incredible. But what about people who are deserting from the current armies today? You know, would they want to make them heroes? No, this. How, well, how? they're traitors because they're not fighting wars for the Jews. They're not being good goyim. That they're, they're not. Out there spilling their blood on behalf. Well, right, but I mean, you can't you can't honor one group of deserters and then say other deserters are should go before a firing squad or something. Well, well but that's what they do. Deserter, and you're honoring them irregardless of, of his um, motives. They don't even know the motives of these people. Why they deserve? No, and listen <laughs> to this. Listen to this. They say in in kind of shamefully they say oh in large parts of the Austrian population deserters are still considered oh. This computer did it again. It jumped up to the top. Let me find that now. It's right here. Deserters are still considered cowards, traitors, even comrade killers. And they say a a monument. No, then they say a monument, especially and especially the public debate around the erection of the monument could somehow change that. So that we don't think of deserters as cowards and traitors. Now, and, and now they said this person who's in charge of pushing this said, 
Mr. Geldmacher, said an estimated 15,000 to 20,000 Austrians deserted from the Wehrmacht, especially in the final days of World War II. Well, I don't know. A lot of them probably just, you know, quit in the final days and tried to go home or something. I don't know if you could exactly call them full-fledged deserters. The whole the whole issue is so is so dishonest that you can't couldn't even find out what the truth was about. There's that. an underlying thought there where they say that a large part of the Austrian population it still considers those deserters cowards and comrade killers. What the Jew is saying there, what what the article is saying is that a large part of the Austrian population are still Hitler sympathizers, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, that that's the underlying thread there is that there's still evil white Europeans in mm-hmm. a large part of the Austrian population. And and it's very true, too. The Austrians even more so than in Germany, I think. Or maybe in Germany they just stay quieter. But in Austria, they're, they're, uh, we have a, there is a good uh, party, a right-wing party. It's not perfect. Because they have a hard time, you know. They're always, you know, they have to kind of be careful. But uh, they do have it, and it's and it's functioning. They don't do in Austria like they do in Germany, where with the NPD, they just they're trying to ban it and get rid of it altogether, and they just persecute it. Like crazy. Well, well, I think it's a wonderful thing that there's a vibrant right wing in Austria. However, in the Jewish mind, they are basically trying to control the political argument by by um, picturing that right wing, that vibrant right wing, by picturing them as criminals on the level that they try to get us to imagine that the Nazis were criminals. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly right. That's what they're doing there. Now, so now this, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's an example of how, because Jews control the media and Jewish thought controls the media, and it, even in Europe and in America, and there should be no doubt about that. Anybody that examines that will find that. Because they control the media, they're able to control the dialogue. They're able to control the bounds of what's considered normal dialogue and a, a normal world outlook in mainstream society. And, and that is how they get that their political agenda, that that's how they get most of the non-Jews to believe and, and buy into it. And they control the language, too. And we've talked about that. I've yeah. talked about that on this show. Um, the language that's used in the media, and, and the uh, media in the largest sense, you know, including TV and uh, movies and publishing and so on, that language is the language that people think is the only correct or right language to use. Well, well right. We get tripped up with a lot of words like anti-Semitism is not an accurate term at all. It, it's not at all accurate. And anti, I'm not an anti-Semite. I'm an anti-Antichrist. Okay. That, yes. The, well, that's right. You are. The, the Jews are antichrists. They are the antichrist. Collect. Well, let, okay. And let's let's look at this at this next one because this fits right in here. The uh, this is the one where the uh, the Austrian far right. Uh, okay. This is. Uh, the far right celebrates on the Holocaust holiday, the Day of Remembrance, and that's got that got these uh, lefties and Jews all upset. So uh, they have this traditional Vienna ball, which is uh, right. They always say far right. They never say right. It's always far right. But it's just right, kind of right wing like fraternities that have been around in Germany and Austria, especially in Austria. They're very, very alive. 
um, for, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years. I mean, they go way back. They're very traditional, historic, these fraternities. And, but they're not, you know, they're anti-communist type people. And so the communists don't like them. Uh, but they have this ball, uh, on this, uh, last, uh, Friday of every February, every year. Um, and so this, this year, the last Friday of February fell on this Holocaust Remembrance Day. And they, but they had their ball all scheduled. And so these, uh, protesters get out in the, in their thousands or whatever. And they start, they try to stop people from going to this ball because they have no right to have this because they're right wing, you see. <laughs> they have no right to ha- hold their ball on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Uh, because we're supposed to just, because it offends the Jewish sensibility. So, but the police made sure that the people got to the ball and they didn't give in. They stood up for it and they said, we, you know, we didn't, they were accused of scheduling it on purpose on this stupid Holocaust day, which of course they didn't. Uh, but the paper I, plays this up. I honestly thought that every day was Holocaust Remembrance Day. <laughs> Well, actually, it's not because this week leading up to and even still is really been heavy with Holocaust stuff. Really. I have two articles in front of me that are interesting. And, and one was in um, and this is how the, the Jews, they constantly have to keep us in remembrance of this so-called Holocaust. And, and one is from 2008 and it's German youth suffering Holocaust fatigue. Yeah. And, and, and the whole gist of the article, it's on onejerusalem.com. It's a Jewish website. And the whole gist of the article is that German youth are tired of hearing about the Holocaust. And now in, in, um, Yahoo News, just last week, January 25th, 2012, one in five Germans unaware of Auschwitz. Yeah, but you know who the Germans are now? If they're talking to, uh, German students wasn't wasn't that about uh, children or something uh, school kids? Yes, maybe. maybe yeah, they and turn. there's so many uh, foreigners in school now, and these foreigners uh, don't care about it. That's one thing about them, anyway. They don't care about the Holocaust, but the German youth are pretty good at going along with the indoctrination because they're the ones that are being told how guilty they are and they need to do it. Well, well, it seems like I see an article like this about every other week or every week. Either. Well, that's another thing, though, that I think the Jews are putting those out. I don't really believe I don't believe in those articles because the Jews put that out in order to say we need more Holocaust education. That, well, that's the whole purpose of that. Basically, to me, though, it, it's even worse than that. The, the Jews put this out every week to keep the Holocaust in everybody's mind every week. Well, yeah. Yeah. And they have all kinds so, of stories. Half the times they're nonsensical. This about the Holocaust or that about the Holocaust. And, and the Jews have, have um, defined that the entire Jewish issue in the eyes of the public revolves around the Holocaust. And in the meantime, Jews are stealing Western civilization out from under us. And we're preoccupied yeah. about the Holocaust. Well, that's right. And on, on this uh, Holocaust, this year's Holocaust Remembrance Day, the Norwegian prime minister uh, Stoltenberg formally apologized for his country's role in the Nazi persecution of Jews during World War II. So they keep getting people to make the apologies, to pay some money. And the story also reminded us that in 1998, Norway paid $60 million to Norwegian Jews and Jewish organizations. 
because they're so, but now today, but he didn't formally apologize. Norway never formally apologized. Now they finally have caved in and apologized and said, yes, they are guilty of, of helping the Nazis uh, deport the Jews and so on. And now one last thing here, Angela, uh, you know, about the, the Eurozone and the Euro crisis. Now, Greece, this really gets me. You know, they want, they, Greece is needing this multi, multi billion, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, new installment of, of a loan money from the, from the Eurozone. And the only people that have any money are the Germans. And so because she's, uh, doesn't want to just hand it over to them, she's being called by the Greeks a Hitler, uh, at a Gaulite, Hitler's Gauleiter, or they, because she wants to send somebody to Greece to oversee how this money is being handled and so on. And so she's being called a Hitler. Uh, and, and this is what they do all over Europe. They, they want the Germans to pay, but they don't want Germans to have any authority or to be put in charge, really. So they keep bringing up World War II and the war and so on to say they, they, you know, they're, they shouldn't be able to be allowed to rule over the rest of us. Uh, but at the same time, they're supposed to pay all the bills. I, I just wish Germany would just drop out of everything, close, put their, close their shutters. Say we're we're done with you guys. Of course, then they're probably God knows what would they be done to them by the banks. But um, but you know, and say uh, you you take care of your own game, and we'll take care of ours. But um, it's just just sickening. Well, well, what's funny is that when Germany wanted to rule Europe in an honest monetary system, the U.S. and Britain destroyed Germany, didn't they? Well, for that reason too. And now Germany's being propped up to rule Europe with a um, with a Jewish monetary system. That's absolutely dishonest. Yeah, but all the other countries uh, resent if Germany wants to put any restrictions on them. They want to just keep living the way they do and have being bailed out. That's what that's what they want. This is the, well, these well, people. The bottom line, and I tried to, yeah, you know, we 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 tried to cover this. Um, of the last time we spoke together here on, on when we talked about my un, European misunion paper. And mm-hmm. the bottom line is that Greece and Italy and Portugal and Spain will never be able to function in the same economy as Germany and Britain. It's never, and, and, and the Scandinavian nations, it's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I and, say right now, I don't know, Greece should be kicked out. Greece should never have gone into the Eurozone to begin oh, with, and that's why they're the big problem. And, and not that I want any of this to continue, but, but if they were going to do the right thing, Greece should just be released. And why do they keep trying to prop up Greece? I don't because understand. It's an offense to Jewish vanity and anti-European vanity to admit failure and, and to admit that Greece can't be part of the European Union, and it may actually endanger the existence of the European Union Totally, because other countries will will be use that as an excuse to bail out. Well, I I, I would like it to be endangered because I don't like the way it's going. Uh, even if Germany's in, in the head dog, well, in- well, a lot of patriots in every you know a lot of patriots and and I speak to a lot of people in England and and Germany and a lot of patriots in all of those countries. And there, there are people that come to my Christogenia forum from, from from Romania, from Spain, from France, from Belgium, and they all want to see the European Union fail. Not that they dislike or, or have any animosity towards Germany or England or any of the other European countries, 
but because they understand that local rule is best. Mm-hmm. Okay, well let's let's go on to your Saxon Messenger uh, newsletter. I think it's it's excellent. I've looked at all the issues. You come out with it monthly. It's online. It doesn't come in. It's not a, a hold in your hand. It's an online newsletter, but it, it's uh, it's full of a lot of things. Now, there's a lot of uh, religious. There not a lot. There's some religious articles, there's biblical articles, and so on in there. But there's a lot. Of, uh, there's also political art- articles and things of a, a real real interest to everybody. And I think people should uh, sign up for it. I, I don't think they know about it. And a lot of people who they, you would get some great, uh, great messages in that in that uh, newsletter. And it would just come. Uh, it would just uh, you just get an announcement. I guess that's how I do it. And then you just click on there and go to it uh, when when it's there. And you can go to his website now. So tell people how, how they can uh, read the Saxon Messenger and and why what you're all about with that. Well, well, they could usually get the Saxon Messengers just by going to my main Christagenia website and, and clicking on announcements, and you'll see each announcement for each Saxon Messenger. But there are also links to the Saxon Messenger website where I have, um, I, I don't know, probably a couple of thousand articles, and those articles have to do with um, not only Christian identity, but they have to do with early European history that they have to do with um, European culture and, and many other things that they're broken down into categories. I have a lot of my own editorials there. You, you would mention Norway in conjunction with um, the, the Jews and the Jewish guilt that's being laid on, on Norway now. And, and I actually um, wrote an editorial a few months ago. I wrote an editorial for the Saxon Messenger, which a few popular websites picked up, including rents.com, and, and it got a lot of reads because of that. And, and that actually outlined that the, um, a, a Jewish plot against Norway because that the, um, the Norwegians w- were picking up the cause of the oppressed Palestinians in the Middle East. And, and that was that there were many clear warnings issued by the Jews to the Norwegian people. And and um, I really believe that the Anders Breivik case was basically a false flag operation to cease support of the Palestinian cause in Norway. And and I have a pretty popular article. Okay. What about what about your latest on uh, South Africa? What what can well, you tell us about that? I had um, recently wrote written an opinion piece explaining that the African National Congress, which just celebrated its 100th anniversary, it is basically a Marxist sham, that Marxism is is a sham. The African National Congress has always been a communist organization, and and there are certain liberal pundits in Europe who are trying to claim that now that the African National Congress has come to power, it's no longer communist. Well, of course it's no longer communist. Once the, once the, the non-producers become the holders of a nation's wealth, they don't want to part with it. So they give up their communist ideologies. And, and we've seen that in China. China's not a communist state. China is, is a, a state capitalist state. 
It's not communist at all. It's not Marxist in, in the traditional sense mm-hmm. of the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and not. Yeah, you know, we've seen that in Soviet Russia. When Soviet Russia was dissolved, 10 or 12 Jews ended up with the entire industrial wealth of the nation. Well, that, the African National Congress with, uh, who, who was the guy who, uh, was so popular that managed to get the whites out of there? I can't think of his name right now. You know, that well-known black a- African. Yeah, who's yeah. In so you can't think of his name either, huh? Well, it's okay. Nelson Mandela, but I don't like Mandela. Him. Yeah, Mandela. Well, well, when I think of that, it's like a direct similarity to Martin Luther King and his his group. All right, but basically, the they're both the same. Congress it has been communist until they obtained the wealth and the control of the nation's economy, and of course, they're no longer communist because they want to hold on to it. It was Jews behind it in Africa all the time. Yeah, talk about that Jew that was uh, that was running that for them. Well, well all, all of the um, all of the so-called and and they all look white, right? All of the so-called white-looking civil rights or or black sympathizing um, figures in the history of South Africa, they've almost all been Jews. Uh, You know, there's a whole long list right on Wikipedia. I I mean, this is common knowledge. And and even Wikipedia acknowledges. Was that guy Joe Slobo or something like that? Yeah, Joe Slobo. He's a Hungarian (laughs) Jew. He, He came to South Africa when he was like eight years old. He started off as a union activist. He's, um... He's absolutely celebrated by the South African Communist Party and by the ANC that they love this guy. He looks white. Well, he's a Jew. And and it's the case with all of these rabble rousers. And, and basically, the, the, the entire the, the ANC and, and the entire um, black rights movement in South Africa has just been a way to destroy white society there. And that's exactly what they've done is they've destroyed white society. And, and South African whites are on the verge of genocide right now, and it's real. Right. We'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back with more on the Heretics Hour. You're listening to VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. Well, let's go now to the latest in the crisis in the Eurozone. Today, European Union leaders got together for their first summit of the year in Brussels. Now, not that the idea is to put some, now the idea is to put some finishing touches on a plan they hope will help the 17-nation Eurozone Get back on its financial feet, at least eventually. But here's what they're facing, an uphill battle, a very unstable Greece where concerns about a default are alive and well, an unstable Portugal where borrowing costs have skyrocketed. And the biggest problem, once again, very different ideas about what the best solution is. Even more cutting back by countries like Greece, 
or perhaps a new policy of stimulus, which insiders say would have to come from Germany. From what we understand, there has been quite a bit of back and forth about these ideas, and this meeting, of course, comes on the heels of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Now, our own Lauren Lister, host of The Capital Account, just returned from there and is with us now to discuss what is happening and, more importantly, why we should care. All right, Lauren, let's go first to that meeting that happened in Brussels today, uh, kind of putting all those ideas on the table in terms of what to do about this crisis, which is still, frankly, a crisis. Yeah. Um, talk about this meeting and, again, why we should care about it. This meeting, I don't know why you should care, Christine. It's a series of talks that we've seen continue for months now, for over a year, okay? The Eurozone agenda and crisis really dominated Davos with so much focus on the official agenda and with that really kind of taking over. Really, the U.S. was just, you know, not a big part of the agenda in comparison. And this is just a continuation of the same thing. More talks, more trying to deal with the debt crisis, more trying to come to a solution. Different leaders have different ideas about what should be done. Um, but at some and this point, this is just a continuation of the talks. At some point, it, there needs to be a little less talk and a little more action, though, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the kind of what's at the crux of it right now is that uh, Greece, it, there was supposed to be an, a deal reached with bondholders uh, for their next rescue aid package, and Oli Ren, the VP of Economic and Monetary Affairs for the EU at Davos, was saying he thought one would be reached by the weekend. Now they're still working on it. It hasn't been. The last thing we saw was uh, an official reported that Germany wants to actually take take over the fiscal matters, the budget of Greece, as a wow. contingency for their uh, next bailout. So I think there's a lot of questions about freedom and democracy, because while I heard a lot of Eurozone leaders talk about the current form of capitalism there as the best way to achieve freedom and democracy, what is it when you're giving over your, your fiscal matters to... Uh, another country to a larger organization, to international organizations. That's not sovereignty. So what? Greece has to give up their country now, too, because, you know, banks wrote loans that, that kleptocrats then uh, took on, and now the people have to pay with austerity and giving up their sovereignty? And they'll have to bow down to whatever Germany tells them. That does seem a little strange. Uh, let's switch gears, though. I want to hear more about Davos. I know we, we had you on a, little, a few times last week to talk about what you were experiencing. Let's return to the Heretics Hour, brought to you by VOR, ReasonRadioNetwork.com. And now here's Carolyn. Well, we're back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Carolyn Yeager. My guest is uh, William Fink of Christagenia.org and also of the uh, the, uh, the uh, producer of the Saxon Messenger. Uh, newsletter, what we were talking about. And uh, I wanted to, uh, I should also say my website is carolynjaeger.net. Uh, go there sometime and take a look if you if you don't go there regularly. Um, I never do promote that much. Uh, but I forgot to give the phone call-in number at the beginning of the hour, and it is 1-855-477-2283. 
if you have a burning question or a comment for Mr. Fink. Now, uh, Bill, uh, we were talking about South Africa, and you had some more things to say about that. Well, well basically, you know, Jews, just like Jews led the American Civil Rights Union, yeah, J- J- Jews led the American Civil Rights Movements in the 1940s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Jews founded the NAACP. Mm-hmm. Jews created black South Africa through those same civil rights movements there. And Jews and the Jewish-controlled Western media gave the ANC, which was always a communist organization, gave it credibility and never told us that these black organizations that were going to take over South Africa were communists. Now, blacks are running South Africa. They're running it into the ground. They're also running Zimbabwe into the ground and, and several other nations there. They're not only running it, they run it into the ground. I mean, I, you can't well, imagine anything worse than what's going on in those places. Well, well, whites are on the verge of extinction. Genocide Watch is the only website I've seen that that's a sort of mainstream website that's not Christian identity or white supremacist. But, but Genocide Watch is the only website I've seen that actually talks about the seriousness of the situation of whites mm-hmm. in South Africa right now. And, and they rate the possibility for genocide against whites in South Africa six out of a possible seven. Now, the Jewish-controlled Western media is virtually ignoring the possibility and, and the, the reality of genocide of whites in South Africa right now. Jews are behind this. Jews are also behind white, non-white immigration and civil rights for non-whites in white nations everywhere. Mm-hmm. South Africa is only the vanguard. If we do not stand up against the Jew, we will have South Africa in every white nation, Europe and America, within the next 20 years. Right now in America, under this Obama administration, Blacks are being given government jobs and, and in high positions of authority in, in ever-increasing numbers, in incredible numbers. And, and pretty soon our government is going to have a totally black, well, well, Jewish face at the top. It already has, but a black face in the middle. And, and, and I don't know how we're going to come out from under that. And, and our government is going to be run into the ground because blacks can't administer anything. No, and 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 you're right. Uh, it's not it's not the blacks who are, are achieving this. It is the Jews. It's the Jews that have put uh, Obama in as president of this country. Unqualified individuals into into all sorts of government. Uh-huh. That's right. That's and it's just it's and people have said in five years ago, people were saying, well, if if this happens what's happening now today well then how people will get out and really do something well it's happening and uh people are noticing but not to the point of really getting out and doing something but i i really want to make this point on this program that we need to stand up against the jews not against some zionism or against some a new world order globalism or against some kind of name that that people have put on things uh or or I don't mind calling it the Antichrist, but we just have to identify who the Antichrist is. But we have to get over this, this, uh, fear of being called anti, an anti-Semite, which is 
really, we've really got to get over that and fast. And we need to start standing up and saying the Jews are killing us and we can't let it happen. How else can you say that? Well, well, absolutely. They have been the purveyors of destruction in every Western nation. They are purposely flooding our media and we have to stop using their language and we have to stop caving in to their paradigm and their wealth in Shang, their world outlook. Mm-hmm. And we, we have to become explicitly white and, and pro white and, and not be embarrassed about it because the blacks aren't being embarrassed about being explicitly pro black. Jews are absolutely explicitly pro-Jew. And people, you know, you mentioned the United <laughs> Nations a few times before. In 1975, the UN passed a resolution, and it was Russia behind it, but it was still done, that Zionism was racist and Jewish supremacy. And in 1991, Jewish pressure had that resolution dissolved and, and removed. But But that doesn't change the truth. Zionism <laughs> is Jewish supremacy. That's right. And if they have a right to self-determination in a land that wasn't even theirs for for, for 3,000 years, well, well, then we have the right to self-determination in our lands or anywhere we are. Well, you you had uh, you told me about an article by Weibe, uh, Weibe, a uh, German, uh, and it is uh, shoot, I didn't put down the uh, title of it, but it's on your website. It's HTTP M K dot christagenia dot org slash w i e b e and it's a long article but it was written obviously back around in the third reich time and this fellow this uh scholar was writing about uh he just gave went through the whole history very, very did a nice job of it of what the jews had done and how how much harm they had caused and how nobody wanted them the big point was that at that point was that the germans wanted to get rid of the their jews but nobody wanted them. Nobody in Europe, nobody anywhere would take them in. And this was the problem that they had. So uh, it goes on and on. But now he ends up, he, he goes through all the crimes, all the problems that, the, that Jews had, how much influence they had gained in Germany and how many problems they were causing and all the crime and the, and the, uh, just, um, the, uh, the corrupt culture and so on, what we all know about. Anyway, uh, then, but at the end, I was very disappointed, and I wrote, I, I copied this down because I wanted to bring it up. He says, um, he says, in the long run, this is his actual last sentence, in the long run, it must depend. He's saying how uh, the Jews cannot assimilate, okay, and they've never assimilated anywhere that, you know, host countries have made room for them, have welcomed them. And then they just finally they want to get rid of them, you know, because they can't they can't work out this Jewish problem. And he says the Jews carry this Jewish problem with them because they're the problem. You know, it's not somebody else's problem. So wherever they go, they carry that problem. And so he's saying that, you know, blah, 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 what needs to be done. They need a Jewish state. He talks about uh, the. He says that can never he says it's hard to think that a Jewish state can ever be successful. But he finally says, in the long run, it must depend on the Jews themselves and on their immense financial power whether the united efforts of the Western countries to find a solution will be fruitful or not, whether after 2,000 years of incessant wanderings, Ahasuerus will eventually find rest. Well, that's a very 
uh, you know, poetic ending, I guess. But the Jews are not going to find a solution for their Jewish problem. Their solution is to, <laughs> this is, this is just a cop out because this guy, as well as he wrote all this, could not come up with a solution. Well, well, right. And he has that humanistic taint at the end, but that's like asking ticks to find an alternate food source. Good, good way to put it. It good can't point. be done. It just can't be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, you know, this is a tremendous problem, and the Nazis were grass were grappling with it, and much to their credit, because nobody else will, uh, and has not since. But we have to grapple with it, and we have well, to uh, be honest about it. It's I'll say the obvious and say that the solution was never to destroy them all. It, no. it was to move them beyond the, the beyond the um, beyond the Don River and in the you know, in somewhere in the eastern Russia, maybe even beyond the um, the, the Ural Mountains, right? It, it was to move them to Madagascar. It was to cooperate with the Zionists and get them all to Palestine, anywhere but in Germany. Well, you know, I, now that we're in the space age, I think I'd like to move them to the moon. Or well, well, build, I, I build a space say- colony and put them on there and don't let them... Come back. I mean, don't let them have the ability to come back, but give them everything they need. That is the only, I know people might think this is unrealistic, but I'm not joking. I mean, this is the only way that I can see that would solve anything because they have to be totally away and we have to be out of their grasp totally. Well, well, the Christian promise is that they all end up in a lake of fire. Well, that's the Christian promise. And, and that's I, I sincerely believe. And, and that lake of fire is an allegorical term. But but that's the only solution that that is. Well, the I'm, not gonna, I'm not going to wait for that. I, <laughs> I, I want to see us start starting to do something. Um, you know, I want us to see us at least uh, uh, understand the, the, the gravity of this problem and be willing to say, the Jews are the are a problem, a big, big, big problem, and we know what a problem they've been. Just in this country, in this poor, pathetic United States of America, in the bad shape that it's in today. Oh, think of all the harm that they've done, and that they're doing now to us, like causing us to go broke. You know, uh, well, well, I have a few comments from from Doctor Weeby's article, right, Kurt Weeby. Okay. Germany, the Jewish problem. This came to me. I had a copy of the original pamphlet scanned from, from a gentleman who I know um, who had this pamphlet at, in his library and, and many of the other resources that he has been kind enough to to um, to, to provide for us on, on the, my Mein Kampf project website, right, mk.christagenia.org. And, and I OCR'd it and cleaned up the text and posted the text along with um, the scans of the original article. And Kurt Wiebe lays out a very academic view of the Jewish problem in Germany from statistics, from their history, from everything that was going on, and he covers all of the major areas of society, such as the theater and, and the arts and and. And crime, and and for instance, he he has all the actual crime statistics, mm-hmm. where he says that the Jewish compared Jewish compared with Christian criminals, Jews are fourteen times more likely to be arrested. Yet you know when when people are arrested for fraud and trickery, 
they are 14 times more likely to be Jews than Christians after you allot for their percentages in the population, right? And, and 13 times more likely to commit usury, 11 times more likely to commit copyright infringement, nine times more likely to commit fraudulent bankruptcy, six times fraudulent insolvency, five times more likely to, to be caught receiving stolen property, five times more likely to be, um, I'm sorry, three times more likely to commit commercial fraud and, and on and on. And, and, um, it, it's, yeah, you know, we have these, these gangsters in America at the same time. And, and if you go and research the, the, the known mobsters and gangsters of the twenties and thirties and, and you look for Germans or Englishmen or Irishmen in the list, you'll find some. But if you look for Jews in the list, You'll find many, and 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 and, and yet you know the the um the crime in America and and especially the fantastic yet you know organized crime in America in the 1920s and 30s it wasn't exclusively Jewish, and and there were a lot of Italians, but I would bet a lot of those Italians were Sicilians and and had Jewish or Arab blood because that's what Sicilians are. And, and they're related more closely to the Jews than they are to Northern Europeans. But the number of Jews... Well, I know one Sicilian who would not like hearing that, and he's a real good guy, but, oh, well, but there might be a lot of truth I mean, in that. I could talk about the history of it all day long. Yeah, that, that's yeah. just the truth. I mean, well, historical facts are historical facts. But but the... Um, the, the 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 number you're in looking at America's American gangsterism and American crime in the 20s and 30s, organized crime. You're much more likely. You're many times more likely to find Jews involved than you would even the Irish or, or the English or the Germans. And, well, and, and uh, okay. And another thing we brought out was that uh, that the worst. A jewelry was found in Eastern Europe, and when those hordes, uh, three million of them in Poland, there were so many there, and when they came, got loose and started coming, you know, west, then we were really in trouble. Well, well, right, and, and the biggest problems. And these are, are all these are all the Holocaust survivors that right. that lie. They lie. They 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 could care less about. They have no idea what is between a truth and a lie. Lighten they really don't. Anything to support their their agenda and their own advancement. And one of the biggest problems in Germany in the Weimar Republic was sexual indecency. And Christians today have been absolutely emasculated. Christians should not, and not only Christians, but any normal white European people that care about their culture, their race, and their heritage should not ever stand for sexual indecency and pornography and, and and all the perversions and homosexuality, lesbianism was openly promoted in the Weimar Republic. I have um, dupli- I have replicas of the posters that prove that that there's um, photographs of posters from the Weimar Republic on my website, mm-hmm. which promote drug use. They promote lesbianism and. and when we well, see- and we have the same thing now. Well, what about in, in now in here and in Europe? Uh, all this stuff is promoted. Well, well, if you look at America's porn kingpins on JewishFaces.com, all the major pornographers, 
all the major figures in the pornography industry. They are all Jews. And that's a fact. And that that's a fact. That's been published in so many places. Nobody should doubt that. There's no doubt about it. And just that alone, just that alone, that they are running this huge porn industry uh, in every everywhere where they live, let let alone uh, of, of slaving enslaving uh, white women into uh, prostitution and so on. But just this porn industry alone should be enough to to say we got to condemn these people and get get rid of them. I mean, it's almost ninety ninety five percent Jewish. The porn industry. Well, well, the ADL, which takes very few positions on on mainstream political issues outside of you know those directly related to Jews, I have a headline here from from um, last year that, and, and this is on Haaretz, ADL welcomes ruling against U.S. military's "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" policy. They come out time and again with openly pro-sexual deviant stances. The ADL. That they, they stick up for Jews and they stick up for sexual deviance. Why is that? I'll tell you why that is. Because there's usually no difference between the two. Okay. And now what, what are, what are you going to say when people bring up, uh, all these, uh, uh, academic Jews and the book, book writers and so on. And, and of course the Nobel Prize winners and they, they, another thing is prizes. You know, the, the, the system, makes all these medals and prizes and awards and so on, and then they give them to the people who do what they want them to do. And the Jews do this. The Jews have all kinds of prizes and awards they give to one another. We, we, we in our movement, we should come up with some awards and, and give them to people that are doing a good job. I mean, th- these would be well-earned and serious. Well, we should have things like that. The Nobel Prizes, the Pulitzer Prizes, the Oscars, all of those prizes are just the, the way Jews reward themselves, get themselves in the news all the time and, and keep themselves there, make themselves elevated above everybody else and occasionally reward the obedient Goyim. That's all they yes, are. Yes. Yeah. That's obedient. all they are. Well, what about, did that Nobel, I can't, now I forget now, was he... Does he turn out to be a Jew? The, the uh, Nobel. I don't think started? Alfred Nobel himself was a Jew, but no, but no, he wasn't. Okay. Henry Ford wasn't a Jew, and the Ford Foundation has been usurped by Jews, and and Carnegie wasn't a Jew, and the Carnegie Foundation has been usurped by Jews, and, and they've both been used to advance Jewish causes worldwide. No, the Red Cross has been usurped by Jews too. I don't suppose there's anything that hasn't been. The UN has. Well, well I mean, when we came to Jews' control of our economy in 1913, we let the bankers make our money, and they've enslaved us ever since. There, there's no doubt that the only inevitable outcome of the, the Jewish control of the Federal Reserve and the Bank of London is that they will control the world. Mm-hmm. The central banking system has been a... a, a um, the, the way that the kingpins of, of the Jewish organized, the Jewry is an organized crime ring. The ADL is its public relations firm. And, and, and the ADL, you know, the, our government looks to the ADL for advice uh, on religions and extrem, extremism and all kinds of things. And, and the ADL is basically a pro-Jewish supremacist organization that's an agency of a secret society. B'nai B'rith is a secret Masonic society. 
Mm-hmm. So we have the ADL is given all of this force of authority as a quasi-governmental agency, practically, and, and, and authority on religion and, and their antichrists that, that, are, that belong to a secret society. Tell me that's not putting the wolves in charge of the hen house. That, oh, well, we know it is. We know it is. But now how do we – we've got uh, four minutes – Left. How do we uh, approach this besides the lake of fire? I don't want to wait. If we don't want to wait, well, let's say uh, we we need to do something now. We need to take charge of this ourselves uh, because we let it happen. Now, how? What, what can we say about that? Like, uh, I know I know it's very very difficult, very difficult because Mike, you know, there's things that uh, it's bad enough to say, as I want to say, anti-Semitism is good. It's bad enough to say that, but then to go even further, uh, well, if anti-Semitism is good, then what does that mean? Uh, what, you know, what are you trying to say? Well, then, then people really will get all bent out of shape. But, uh, it is a removal. Okay. It's easy to say, actually, removal of Jews from our society. And it has to be all Jews and they have to have their own society. And uh, they, they've got talented people. They've got all those uh, academics and <laughs> all those Nobel Prize winners. If they're so great, you know, they can make a society of their own. Uh, of course, we know they can't because we know that they are uh, they, they have to live off off uh, white European man. But uh, but but they let's, according to what they say about themselves, they can do this. And we have to we, this has to be the solution. It has it is, it turns out. It's the same solution that Adolf Hitler's National Socialist Movement uh, came up with. It's it's the same solution. There is no other solution. Well, well Adolf Hitler said, and in, in Mein Kampf, page 46 of Murphy's translation, he said, and so I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. In standing guard against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. Adolf Hitler understood that society was the politi- what was the pinnacle of the creation of God. And, and we have to see it that way, and we have to defend it against the Jew. We have to, we have to start with little things, and, and the most important is to reject the Jews totally. White nationalists and Christians, white pagans have to stop attacking Christians the Jews hate Christianity. There's a damn good reason for that. And if white pagans are ignorant of that reason, don't blame Christians. The Jews hate Christianity more than anything. I agree with you. Pagans don't have to become Christians, but what they have to do is they have to unite with Christians that are Jew-wise in rejecting the Jew, in not giving the Jew the benefit of the doubt of the false identity that he has adopted and created for himself as the so-called chosen people. The Jew have, have been, the Jews have been the eternal enemies of God and Christ. They always were and they always will be. How to explain that is a long historical story, but it's true. Yes, it is a long historical story, but if you get into the history of it, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Uh, but for those who aren't prepared to do that, 
Um, you know, Bill, we've, we're going to have our uh, closing music going to come up on us any minute now. So I'm going to take this opportunity now to thank you for coming on the program. I think we made the point that I wanted to make very clearly. I hope so. And, uh, I mean, I hope people got it. And uh, I uh, want to thank you again for your uh, clarity and uh, to invite people again to go to your Saxon Messenger site and look over your Saxon Messengers and see how many good uh, articles and writings are are in there. You, You have a real good ability to pull things together. Well, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I wish we had another hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we just get going, but uh, it's. Uh, I think I think we've covered everything, though. But I would like to tell people to uh, that there's also a good uh, video about ex- not making exceptions. You know, uh, which is what you were saying in the, at the very end there by Mike Delaney on your site. So, all right, goodbye, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Come back next Thanks for listening. The Heretics Hour returns Monday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern U.S. Time. Join us at ReasonRadioNetwork.com.